When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hey everybody, I'm Jared Halverson and welcome back to Unshaken. Thrilled to spend some time in the scriptures with you today. Institute started for me in person a couple of weeks ago and if you're one of those students, I particularly welcome you. I've been so grateful that technology has allowed us to expand our classroom around the world, but I sure have missed having people in my actual classroom. And even though I can only see half your face behind the mask, I'm grateful for the light in your eyes. I can't shake your hands yet, but I can feel the strength of your faith and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that you guys come to class after watching these videos, ready to dig even deeper. And I've been thrilled with your comments, your insights, the faith and testimony that you share with me each week. And for those that are outside of the area or outside of official institute age, I've been so grateful to see your comments as you share insights, things that I hadn't thought of. So thank you for teaching me. Today we reach the climax of the Book of Mormon, really, the coming of Jesus Christ. 3 Nephi 11, I probably read more times as a missionary with people trying to help them see the power of the Book of Mormon and what a place to begin. Right when Jesus comes among his other sheep, not of the old world fold. I'm excited to get to that chapter today, but I hope we see that the three chapters that lead up to it, 3 Nephi 8, 9, and 10, are such an important part of that crescendo, the darkness before the light. This past Easter, just a few weeks after I started this channel, I made a video called The Awful Arithmetic of the Atonement. I was still figuring out how to do this YouTube thing, so I'm not sure if production values are very high. But the content was something that, to me, has been life-changing. And I spent some time talking about a musical oratorio that was written back when I was in college called The Garden. The Garden, of course, is Gethsemane. There's a ram caught in the thicket. There's a plant that can't grow. There's an olive tree that is barren. There's a millstone that feels useless. There's a gardener that's trying to reassure everyone and a landlord that's trying to keep everyone in that place. And then there's one other character, a man with many names, he's called, that will someday come, the gardener keeps promising. He'll free the ram from the thicket. He'll coax growth out of this seedling. He'll reassure the barren tree of its worth and do the same for the millstone. In the video that I made to teach the atonement, I used one of the songs from the garden to try to illustrate what was taking place for Jesus in Gethsemane. And he plays the pivotal role, of course. But the name he's given in that oratorio, I think is so fitting. The man with many names. If you were to look up Jesus Christ in the topical guide, you would see a list that is incredibly long of name titles, symbols that represent who Jesus is. And each one shines a light at a different facet of his personality or of his mission. In fact, in the Doctrine and Covenants, often as the Lord begins one of his revelations, he'll frequently reintroduce himself, choosing specifically one of those names, a symbolic title that often has a lot to do with the content of the revelation that will follow. Jesus is the Lamb of God, and he's the Good Shepherd, and he's the door of the fold. He's the rock, he's the vine, 
He's the lion and the lamb. And sometimes he's more lion, and other times he's more lamb. Occasionally over the years, serving in bishoprics, I've assigned sacrament meeting speakers just to choose a name of Jesus and teach us what that name has to do with him, what it says about him. Those are some of my favorite sacrament meetings because they're so Christ-centered. Well, I want to start today with the name titles that Jesus chooses for himself when he first introduces himself to the gathered Nephites. That's in chapter 11. But I think that title helps us put into perspective what's going to happen in chapter 8, 9, and 10 to begin today. As the Savior descends, 3 Nephi chapter 11, verse 11, he says, Behold, I am the light and the life of the world. Now, we talked about that a little bit last week as we began 3 Nephi, especially chapter 1. The sign of Christ's birth was light, light shining in darkness. We talked about it at the end of Helaman when we discussed Samuel the Lamanite, that that was the sign given to make it perfectly clear, not just that Jesus had come, but who Jesus was in coming to bring light to a world in darkness. Well, the flip side of Samuel's prophecy of Jesus' birth was his prophecy of Jesus' death. And it was the exact opposite of the kind of sign that he prophesied for the first. Instead of light shining when there should have been darkness, at the death of Jesus there was nothing but darkness, even at times when there should have been light. Such fitting metaphors for the light and the life of the world, since that darkness was also accompanied by destruction and death. That is what 3 Nephi 8, 9, and 10 are all about. And it's against the backdrop of that period of inescapable darkness and death that Jesus comes to reintroduce to these people the light and the life that they had been missing. This man of many names chose perfect names for the gathered multitude there in the land bountiful. But to appreciate that light, let's understand the darkness. In chapter 8, verse 1, it's almost as if Mormon himself knows that we are reaching the climax of this narrative. And so he reaffirms its truthfulness. He says, It came to pass that according to our record, and we know our record to be true. How does he know it? Because it was a just man who did keep the record. And how do you know he's a just man? For he truly did many miracles in the name of Jesus. And there was not any man who could do a miracle in the name of Jesus, save he were cleansed every whit from his iniquity. I'm grateful that Mormon is reestablishing these credentials to know that we can trust the record that is about to describe the most important event in the last 600 years of Nephite history. And he bases those credentials not on perfection, but on worthiness and a certain kind. Not on cleanliness, but what we might call cleansedness, because that's the word he uses. Cleansed, not clean. What allowed this record keeper to perform miracles? He had been cleansed, which means he needed cleansing. He was just, but only because the Lord had been merciful to his injustices. I love that he was able to perform many miracles because the greatest miracle, the atonement of Jesus Christ, had already taken place in his life. And who better to talk about the coming of the light of the world to shine through darkness than someone who had to be cleansed from his own iniquity and was cleansed every whit. I don't need a perfect person to act as historian for perfection personified who's about to come. I'd actually prefer imperfection, not only because it gives me someone to relate to, 
because it reassures me that this is someone who knows who Christ really is, having seen him through the lens of the atonement, cleansed every whit from his iniquity. Now, verse 2, if there was no mistake made by this man, just like we see in the title page of the Book of Mormon, there is space granted for the possibility of human error. Scripture does not have to be inerrant in order to be inspired and inspiring. Divine fingerprints mingle with human fingerprints all across the canon. But if he's right, and we believe he is, and we feel that we can trust that he is, then in the reckoning of our time, the thirty and third year had passed away. And with the passage of that time, verse 3, the people began to look with great earnestness for the sign which had been given by the prophet Samuel the Lamanite, yea, for the time that there should be darkness for the space of three days over the face of the land. Now, do you remember back in chapter 1 of 3 Nephi? The people were also thinking about a sign, this time the sign of Jesus' birth, and they were watching for it also. They were looking. Now, here they're looking with great earnestness. Back then, they were looking with great steadfastness. Back in chapter 1, when they were waiting for the birth of Christ and facing their own death if the sign did not come, it was with steadfastness that they watched. You will not push me back into doubt or disbelief. I'm standing firm here as I'm watching. Well, this one seems even more proactive, more anticipatory. Not just a matter of, I will not go back, but here almost a sense of, I want to rush forward. Earnestness means anxious care, solicitude, intenseness of desire, a fixed desire or attention, a seriousness. And that's how they felt about the sign of Christ's death, knowing what it would mean for all of them, for the entire world, that the atonement had been performed, that it was finished, the law fulfilled, death is conquered, man is free. It was with earnestness that they were watching for that. Unfortunately, opposition in all things, just like we saw back in chapter 1, verse 4, there began to be great doubtings and disputations among the people. Notwithstanding, so many signs have been given. So faith has an incredibly strong leg to stand on. These signs are being fulfilled. But, as usual, doubt seems to have a leg to stand on as well. But notice the differences in terms of approach. There were doubtings and disputations. To me, this seems like opposite extremes. Doubting seems like you don't have enough surety. Disputations, meanwhile, seems like you have too much. I mean, the fact that you're fighting over something, you're disputing it. It's like, no, I know I'm right about this. In this case, about these signs. In our case, it could be anything. I know I'm right about this approach to whatever, or this political position, or this spiritual insight. If we're searching for the Goldilocks zone in this, disputation comes from the too hot side. Doubtings comes from the too cold side. And we still see it all around us. How do we strike balance? How do we find our way into the middle? It's a great question. I think in some ways we need to have enough faith to pull ourselves away from the doubting, but also enough humility to keep us from the disputation. When it comes to the signs of the times, to have enough faith to trust their fulfillment, but also to have enough meekness, enough humility, not to dispute over, well, this one means this, and this is the timing, and this is when it's all going to take place. I'm seeing some of that right now take place. Now, some people seem adamant that certain things are being fulfilled right now in particular ways, and others don't seem to care. And personally, I worry about both the apathy and the overzealousness. 
both the complacency and the contentiousness, the doubtings and the disputations that seem to be arising over this particular issue at this particular time. Again, we seem to be living at the end of Helaman, the beginning of 3rd Nephi. The closer we get to 3rd Nephi 11 in our day, the more doubtings and disputations there will probably be. So again, I invite us all to try to find our way into that middle ground, that Goldilocks zone. Now in verse 5, it came to pass in the 30 and 4th year, in the first month, on the fourth day of the month. Now remember, they started their calendar over at the sign of Christ's birth. So here when it says the first month, don't think January. Think same time of year that Jesus was born. Now even though we do celebrate Christmas on December 25th, we don't believe that that's actually when Jesus was born. That would have been really cold for the shepherds to be out abiding over their flocks by night. In fact, why watch over them at night at all? When I was a kid, I thought, man, shepherds must never get any sleep. Well, if this is springtime, lambing season, and with Bethlehem so close to Jerusalem, as some scholars suggest, these were probably temple flocks being prepared for Passover sacrifices. Well, you got to stay up to see which will be the firstborn of the flock, the one that will be able to be, to be qualified to be sacrificed as the Paschal lamb. Again, if Jesus' birth is taking place around Passover, his death is taking place around the same time. That Lamb of God, recognized first by the shepherds, had grown up to become the Paschal Lamb himself, and the time of sacrifice had come. And while all of that is taking place in the old world, what is taking place in the new? The prophecies are being fulfilled. Verse 5 speaks of a great storm, and not just anyone, one as never had been known in all the land. Remember we talked about that with the star last week? How on earth would you be able to recognize a new star when the sky is full of them? Well, it would be a star unlike any you had ever seen. Well, a storm, a great storm, a generational storm, a once-in-a-century storm. No, a once-in-eternity kind of storm. One as had never been known. In verse 6, there was a great and terrible tempest one that shook the whole earth as if it was about to divide asunder. Notice that combination of adjectives, great and terrible, reminiscent of the great and dreadful day of the Lord preceding the second coming of Christ. In fact, that phrase, great and terrible, comes up seven times in this chapter. That is, it describes the cataclysmic events that are surrounding the coming of Jesus. In verse 7, exceedingly sharp lightnings, again, like had never been known. In 8, the city of Zarahemla takes fire. In 9, the city of Moroni is sunk into the depths of the sea. Verse 10, the city of Moroniah is buried by a mountain. This is an intensity of destruction unlike anything I can imagine. I've lived through earthquakes in California, hurricanes in Puerto Rico, tornadoes, and a flood in Tennessee. We just had hurricane-force winds here in Utah just a couple of days ago. But I honestly have a hard time even imagining the intensity of destruction that's taking place here. Verse 11 and 12 sound like an understatement, as it speaks of a great and terrible destruction, both in the land south and in the land north. The whole face of the land was changed because of the tempest and the whirlwinds and the thunderings and the lightnings and the exceedingly great quaking of the whole earth. And if this level of intensity seems impossible to us, it seemed impossible to them too. Remember there were hard-hearted Nephites in Zarahemla that doubted that their great city could ever be destroyed? Just like those in Ammonihah a generation earlier? And yet it's amazing how specific the Lord was when he spoke through Samuel the Lamanite saying, If it were not for the righteous who are in this great city, 
Zarahemla. Behold, I would cause that fire should come down out of heaven and destroy it. And that's exactly the fate of Zarahemla. Or as Mormon says back in Helaman chapter 12, this interruption when he's kind of venting about the pride cycle. He says, if God says to a mountain, be thou raised up and come over and fall upon that city, that it be buried up, behold, it's done. And if that sounds impossible, ask the people of Moronihah. Now, is this a massive earthquake that forced the land upward where that city once stood? Is it a volcano that displaces the city with whatever is left afterwards? Is it a huge landslide that buries the city underground? Who knows? But I find it interesting that Mormon, in writing Helaman 12, perhaps hearkening back to this example, uses it to teach us that God can do anything. The dust of the earth really does obey his direction. I think it's important that we recognize the seeming impossibility of the unheard of nature, never seen these things before, that we're recognizing here in 3 Nephi 8. Because I worry that sometimes today we approach prophecy or revelation with similar skepticism. How can these things possibly come to pass? Well, trust in the Lord. In verse 13, highways are broken up, level roads are spoiled, many smooth places become rough. Remember earlier we saw new cities being built, old cities being repaired, highways being laid out to connect everyone. This beautiful symbol of growth and progress, of repentance and forgiveness, of unification throughout society. Well, all of that is being reversed, suggesting the kind of wickedness and division that led to the crucifixion of Christ. I love verse 13 also because it suggests a reversal of what Isaiah prophesied regarding the coming of Christ. Remember this from Isaiah chapter 40? You can almost hear Handel's Messiah going in the background. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Notice the opposite is taking place here. Isaiah's prophecy describes road construction beautifully. The best highways are the straightest ones, the quickest way to get to your destination. Exalt the valleys, bring down the mountains, like I'm kind of cut one off and flip it over. We want a good level grade, right? None of these winding roads, that takes too long. So let's make the crooked straight. Rough, I don't want to have to slow down and go over some gravel road. Let's grade this thing perfectly and make the rough places plain, smooth. Why? because we want Christ to be able to come and to come quickly. Well, here they have crucified him. They did not want him to come. They wanted him to leave. And those highways were broken. What had been level is now spoiled. What was smooth is now rough. In verse 14, great and notable cities were sunk because there weren't enough great and noble people within them living the gospel. Many were burned, many were shaken, till the buildings thereof had fallen to the earth and the inhabitants slain, and the places were left desolate. Now in 15, some cities did remain, but the damage thereof was exceedingly great. Nice to know there are survivors. We'll meet some of them shortly. But no one seems to come away from this unscathed. Reminds me a lot of the stripling warriors. They survived, but all were wounded. Verse 16, some were carried away in the whirlwind, and we have no idea where they went. Doesn't this seem to suggest what's taking place in our day, spiritually speaking, metaphorically? Highways being broken up. Whatever could have connected us with one another is no longer present. 
people burned by the fiery darts of the adversary, people sunk under the weight of their own sin, people carried about by every wind of doctrine and blown away to places, spiritually speaking, where we cannot find them at all. Of course, it's okay to think literally when it comes to the signs of the times. Earthquakes in diverse places, yes, that happens. But I'm more interested in the spiritual, the metaphorical manifestations of those. As I see people shaking in their faith all over, that's the kind of earthquake I'm more interested in trying to help shore people up against. And I think sometimes what we see happening all around us physically is meant to teach us the more invisible lessons of what's taking place within. In verse 17, you see, thus the face of the whole earth became deformed because of the tempests and the thunderings and the lightnings and the quaking of the earth. You ever seen somebody's face become deformed because of such pain that they're in? This grimace of pain? Ever seen somebody's face get stormy? You ever seen a fire ignite in somebody's eyes out of anger or indignation? You ever seen quaking in someone, trembling? out of fear for what they are seeing before them. The earth itself seems to be reacting this way because her creator has just been killed. No wonder the signs speak of the sun itself turning away, not wanting to shine its light to behold this kind of scene. Or the moon, usually a symbol of peace, of serenity, becoming blood red in its anger over what's taking place before it. The earth itself becoming deformed. You remember what Nephi prophesied of 600 years ago? This is 1 Nephi 19, 10 through 12. As Nephi begins to piece together clues from all these ancient prophets on the brass plates, something from an angel, something from Zenic, something from Neum, something from Zenus, collectively prophesying of Christ's death and burial and resurrection. Nephi says that the Lord will visit the righteous with his voice, whereas the wicked will be visited with natural disasters. Unmistakable evidence that something is taking place until many of the kings of the isles of the sea shall be wrought upon by the Spirit of God to exclaim, the God of nature suffers. And with an empathy that reaches down even to the inward parts, the earth itself suffers alongside him. The God of nature suffers. And so nature shows its own suffering as well. Do you remember what Enoch described in his visions of this embodied, personified earth? Moses 7:48. Enoch looked upon the earth and he heard a voice from the bowels thereof. That's where empathy arises from. That's the seat of real compassion. Saying, woe, woe is me, the mother of men. I am pained, I am weary because of the wickedness of my children. When shall I rest and be cleansed from the filthiness which has gone forth out of me? When will my Creator sanctify me, that I may rest, and righteousness for a season abide upon my face? Later in that chapter, Enoch sees the crucifixion. That earlier passage referred more to the flood. Now he's seeing exactly what's taking place here in 35.8. And he heard a loud voice, and the heavens were veiled. That explains the darkness. And all the creations of God mourned, and the earth groaned, and the rocks were rent. The Old Testament often talks about rending your garments out of devastation, sitting there in sackcloth and ashes. Well, here the earth itself is doing so. Fast forward a little more in Moses 7, and you see this. 
The day shall come that the earth shall rest. That day's not here yet. But before that day, the heavens shall be darkened. A veil of darkness shall cover the earth, and the heavens shall shake, and also the earth. And great tribulations shall be among the children of men. That describes the new world before the first coming of Christ, and it describes the whole world before the second coming of Christ. But notice the promise that accompanies it. My people will I preserve. How? Righteousness will I send down out of heaven, and truth will I send forth out of the earth. Can you sense revelation from above, scripture emerging from beneath, to bear testimony of mine only begotten? And righteousness and truth will I cause to sweep the earth as with a flood. The same earth that was cleansed by a flood of water originally will be cleansed by a flood of truth before it's cleansed by a flood of fire. And that truth gathers out the elect from the four quarters of the earth unto a place which I shall prepare, an holy city, that my people may gird up their loins and be looking forth for the time of my coming. For there shall be my tabernacle, and it shall be called Zion, a new Jerusalem. Don't just think of that on the macro level. When is the church going to get around to building the new Jerusalem? When is the gathering to Missouri supposed to take place? Take it much more personally. That upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies, a cloud and smoke by day, a shining of a flaming fire by night, all that glory for a defense. We're supposed to be building Zion everywhere. Every place the saints assemble. Tabernacles for a shadow in the daytime from the heat for a place of refuge and for a covert from storm and from rain. Isn't that exactly what the people seem to need in 3 Nephi chapter 8? I am grateful for all that the church is doing to gather Zion, to dot the earth with temples, places of refuge. But if it's in every dwelling place, upon all of our assemblies, is my own home a place where righteousness and truth come to meet? Am I building Zion there? One heart and one mind dwelling in righteousness, no poor among us. Is my own family a covering from storm and from rain? Are we looking forward with great earnestness to Jesus whenever he comes to us or whenever we go to him? Again, I love the symbolism of this chapter, of what's taking place. Notice the types of destruction, storm, tempest, whirlwind. With all that rain falling, it's almost like the flood is reoccurring. Think of the water as cleansing. And then the wind, Jesus, when he speaks to Nicodemus, compares the wind to the Spirit. Wind seems to clear things out as well. So baptism of water and baptism of Spirit, picture the cleansing that is taking place through storm and tempest and whirlwind. There's thunder and lightning. Well, the kind of bright light and loud sound that wakes up the world trying to get my kids up in the morning. There's typically plenty of light and sound. I can't quite pull off thunder and lightning, but I'm trying to make things such that my children cannot ignore the message to awake and arise. Nature's alarm clock seems to be serving a similar purpose. It's interesting that in this destruction in 3 Nephi 8, you see earth, you see wind, you see fire, you see water. These four key elements that the ancients thought that everything else revolved around. Again, do you sense that creation itself, nature is suffering here? Earthquakes and whirlwinds, those two are similar in that they both move things. 
They suggest the need on our part for foundations firmly rooted and established, anchor points that we can hold to so that we're not moved. As Paul wrote, continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Or as the Lord says in the Doctrine and Covenants, stand ye in holy places and be not moved until the day of the Lord come. That puts things in second coming context as well. To stand firm amidst an earthquake, to be immovable before a whirlwind. How are we doing through our own third Nephi eights? Are we preparing for our third Nephi elevens? Because when he comes, all of this will change. No more storms and tempests and whirlwinds. No more thundering and lightning. When Christ comes, he will provide light and calm and peace. No more quaking of the earth. He is the rock, the rock of our Redeemer, upon which we can build a sure foundation. Even if there are shafts in the whirlwind, as we read in Helaman 5, they can't pick us up and blow us away. As Enoch described him, he is the rock of heaven. And that rock is as broad as eternity. There's no falling off. There's no edge to fall off of. Everything you see going wrong in chapter 8 is going to be made right in chapter 11. That's exactly the kind of reversal that shifts from fall to atonement. And it all comes through Christ. Now in verse 19, we see that these natural disasters lasted for about three hours. It would have felt like an eternity. The earthquakes that I've lived through lasted seconds. And yet talk about slow-mo. I can only imagine three hours of this kind of devastation. I remember on my mission, a massive Category 5 hurricane was coming and was supposed to just pulverize Puerto Rico. But right before it hit landfall, it veered north and destroyed the Virgin Islands instead. On one of those islands, we had a set of young elders and a senior set of missionaries. And I remember talking to one of those elders afterwards, where the four of them huddled together in the senior missionary's apartment, covered with a mattress from the bed, with things flying all over the place, all around them. And they honestly wondered, not are we going to die, but rather how long until we do. This is fear and trembling. This is great and terrible. For three hours it lasted, but it was said by some that the time was greater. Oh, of course, it's going to feel much, much greater for everyone involved. Nevertheless, all these great and terrible things were done in about the space of three hours. And then behold, there was darkness upon the face of the land. Now, compared to everything they've just lived through for the past three hours, with eyes wide open, lights to see it all, seems like darkness wouldn't be any problem at all. I mean, who's afraid of the dark? But can you imagine darkness following immediately after all this kind of destruction and desolation? The whole face of the earth is deformed, right? Rubble and debris all around you, cracks in the surface of the earth. You can't go anywhere. I would be frozen with fear, darkness all around me, not knowing where it's safe to go at all, especially with this kind of darkness. In verse 20, it's described as thick darkness upon all the face of the land. And it was darkness so thick that it could be felt. It was like this oppressive weight of darkness. Here it's described as those that had not fallen could feel the vapor of darkness. Now, I spent most of my life in the Western United States, dry heat. And yet my two years in the Caribbean and my eight years in the South, let me talk about vapor for a while. The humidity 
When it's cold humidity, that cold just gets to the bone. And when it's hot humidity, it's just oppressive. It's suffocating. I just wonder about this vapor of darkness that just makes it so much worse. Fear just seeping into the bones, this suffocating anxiety. Verse 21, there could be no light. Not just that there was no light, there could be no light because of the darkness. And I don't care if you have candles or torches. I don't care if you have fine and exceedingly dry wood. No fire can be kindled. There could not be any light at all. And that wasn't just true of the man-made attempts at illumination. In verse 22, there was not any light seen, neither fire nor glimmer, neither the sun nor the moon nor the stars. You can't even see the flames consuming the city of Zarahemla anymore. So great were the mists of darkness which were upon the face of the land. Does your spiritual life feel like that sometimes? Remember, Lehi saw mists of darkness as well. The only thing we have to hold on to is that iron rod. But this oppressive weight of sin and temptation pushing in from all around us, suffocating our spirituality. Why? Because we've cast Jesus out of our world, trying to provide light for ourselves in some other way. Again, Isaiah describes this beautifully when he says in chapter 50, verse 11, Behold all ye that kindle a fire. And here they couldn't even do that. You that compass yourselves about with sparks. You can sense Isaiah getting a little chippy here, a little snarky. He's like, oh yeah, you're trying to kindle fire? All you got are sparks. That's all the light you're able to produce. He says, fine, walk in it. Walk in the light of your fire. That is, in the sparks that you've kindled. Do your best. And this shall you have of mine hand. Ye shall lie down in sorrow. I remember as a little kid wanting to read books at night, but it was bedtime and lights out. And so I had a little watch with a watch light. Now don't think of technology today. Think of technology in the 70s and 80s. And a watch light was the dimmest little spark you can imagine. But there I'd huddle under my blanket and put my little watch light on and try to illuminate a tiny little section of the page so I could keep reading a little. I think I did end up lying down in sorrow. I just had to give up. Well, do you see the difference between the light of the world and our pathetic attempts to replace him with some lesser illumination? The light is gone. You have extinguished him and nothing can shine in his place. In verse 23, the three hours of destruction and death is followed by three days of darkness. But though their eyes were useless, their ears were not, There was great mourning and howling and weeping and groaning, and it was continual because of the darkness and the great destruction which had come upon them, the absence of the light and life of the world. Again, I think the darkness intensifies the emotion here. Can you imagine hearing that? Again, you can't go anywhere to try to help, but you can hear the groans, the cries all around you. This is, this is haunting to me. And then the mourns and howls and cries and groans turn into something more recognizable. In verse 24, in one place they were heard to cry saying, Oh, that we had repented before this great and terrible day. Then would our brethren have been spared and they would not have been burned in that great city Zarahemla. Now do you see what they just said? Oh, that we had repented because if we had then they would have been spared. 
They're not saying, I wish they had repented, then they'd still be here. No, it's, I wish I had. I may not be able to change other people, but I can change myself. And why didn't I? Repeatedly earlier in the Book of Mormon, we've seen, it's only the righteous here that is keeping this place afloat. That was true of Ammonihah in Alma's day and Zarahemla just a generation ago in the days of Samuel the Lamanite. Don't cast them out. Both cities were warned because it's only the righteous that are here that are keeping this city from destruction. Well, here the righteous, at least the more righteous than the others, we'll see that in a moment, all wish that they had been more righteous still. If only we had done more as leaven to leaven the lump, the ten righteous that the Lord was looking for in order to preserve Sodom and Gomorrah. Are there things that we can do in letting our light so shine so that those around us can see and glorify God and change? Can we save others through our righteousness, even if they don't choose righteousness for themselves? If only we had repented. In verse 25, in another place they were heard to cry and mourn, saying, Oh, that we had repented before this great and terrible day. But they get more specific about some of the sins they'd committed. If only we had not killed and stoned the prophets and cast them out. Then would our mothers and our fair daughters and our children have been spared. They wouldn't have been buried up in that great city Moroniah. Thus were the howlings of the people great and terrible. So much of accepting the Lord's light into our lives is being open to that light as it is reflected off of his living prophets, his servants. Destruction hasn't come just as a result of rejecting Jesus. It comes from rejecting the servants that he has placed before us. Whether by his voice or by theirs, it is the same. Now these voices that people are hearing in one place or another, these cries of people wishing that they had repented, are then replaced with a clearer voice that everyone hears. In chapter 9 verse 1, there was a voice heard among all the inhabitants of the land, upon all the face of this land. And in the first half of chapter 9, the voice explains the cause and consequence that they're dealing with. And in the second half, the voice explains the solution to the problems they find themselves in. From 2 to 12 is the bad news. Then from 13 to 22, we follow it with the good. Chapter 9, verse 2, Woe, woe, woe unto this people. Woe unto the inhabitants of the whole earth, except they shall repent. A phrase Samuel the Lamanite used often. For the devil laugheth, and his angels rejoice because of the slain of the fair sons and daughters of my people. And it is because of their iniquity and abominations that they are fallen. Honestly, this verse gives me the willies. Can you imagine the adversary laughing and his angels rejoicing, this cackling with glee over the fall of the righteous. Remember what we saw at the end of Alma 30, the final fate of Korahor being trampled down underfoot by the Zormites? And then Mormons take away. Thus we see that the devil does not support his children in the last day, but speedily drags them down to hell. Well, now we get to hear the soundtrack taking place. And it's a laugh track. It's the devil laughing. It's his angels rejoicing. It worked. They fell for it. The joke's on them. And we're the ones laughing. It reminds me of another verse in Moses 7. A lot of parallels to that chapter today. 
And in it, Enoch sees a vision of the adversary. And he says, He beheld Satan, and he had a great chain in his hand, and it veiled the whole face of the earth with darkness. And he looked up and laughed, and his angels rejoiced. You see the parallel? A laughing devil, rejoicing demons, because darkness has covered the earth, and people find themselves in the chains of death and hell. If you want a more personal parallel, then read about the final fate of Samson. The one Israelite judge that had everything going for him and could have conquered the enemy and instead was conquered by that enemy. And what did they do once they got him to break his covenants and cut his hair? They bound him in chains. They put out his eyes. You see the bind and blind? Satan with the great chain in his hand, veiling the face of the earth with darkness. And then what did the Philistines do? They chained him up in their temple and then packed the place so that they could mock at their fallen enemy. And the devil laughed and his angels rejoiced. The closer we get to the second coming of Christ, the more Samson-like members of the church will be as far as their potential for righteousness will be. Each generation seems to surpass its forebears, right? I keep hearing new prophets say, this is the greatest generation that has come. So each generation must be getting better. Well, when will Samson finally defeat the Philistines once and for all? Which generation will avoid being bound and blinded? Which will overcome the mockery of the adversary? I hope I'm teaching and raising that generation right now. The next few verses, this voice from heaven, reminds them of what took place in Zarahemla and Moroni and in Moroniha. But then he begins to use an interesting phrase that keeps being repeated. It's in verse 5 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 11. In verse 5, he speaks of Moroniha being covered with earth for this reason, to hide their iniquities and their abominations from before my face. The idea of hiding that wickedness is the thing that keeps getting repeated in these verses. Remember what the Lord says in section 1 of the Doctrine and Covenants? I, the Lord, cannot look upon sin with the least degree of allowance. And so what is happening here as cities are falling under the sea or being covered by the earth or being blown out of sight, God is hiding that iniquity from before a face that is too holy to behold it. Now, it's not just about him. It's about them as well. Do you remember what Alma said himself back in Alma chapter 12? Describing the state of the unrepentant, he said, in this awful state, we shall not dare to look up to our God. He can't look down to us. We wouldn't want to look up to him. Instead, we would fain be glad if we could command the rocks and the mountains to fall upon us, to hide us from his presence. Well, that's exactly what's happening here. Hiding sin from the all-seeing eye of God. There's another phrase that keeps coming up in these verses as well. End of verse 5, we see it for the first time, that the blood of the prophets and the saints shall not come any more unto me against them. This goes back to this idea of sight and sound. The earth or the sea or the wind hiding iniquity, keeping it out of sight, but also muffling the cries of the martyrs so that their voices crying for justice no longer have to come up before God. 
Remember back in chapter 8, that's one of the things that they were lamenting themselves. Why did we stone or cast out the prophets? Same thing here in chapter 9 and verse 10. Speaking of another city that was burned because of their wickedness in casting out the prophets and stoning those whom I did send to declare unto them concerning their wickedness and their abominations. Remember in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, you fly through the first five seals before you get to the focus on the sixth, end of the sixth really, and the seventh seal. The first four seals, the first 4,000 years of the earth's temporal existence, there's the four horsemen of the apocalypse. But the fifth, the personification, the metaphor that describes the fifth seal, the one from Jesus for the next thousand years, is an altar with the blood of the martyrs at its base perfect description of what happened to Jesus and his apostles and his early followers. And it is these voices crying from the base of that sacrificial altar. When will you avenge us? According to Revelation, they cry with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Fast forward almost 2,000 years and you can hear Joseph Smith saying similar things as he's suffering in Liberty Jail and the saints are being driven from Missouri. How long, he cries, shall thy hand be stayed and thine eye, yea, thy pure eye, behold from the eternal heavens the wrongs of thy people and of thy servants and thine ear be penetrated with their cries. I know you're seeing this, Father. I know you're hearing it. When will you come to our rescue? Well, eyes and ears covering iniquity, hiding it from their face, silencing the cries of the martyrs because he is finally fulfilling their desire, avenging their blood upon the wicked. By the way, as you read through these verses, again, you'll see the focus repeated over and over, hiding iniquity, and avenging the blood of prophets and saints. But you'll also see two interesting details. Number one, this is not random destruction against some unnamed or unknown victim. This isn't just God kind of getting anger out of his system. He knows everyone. God names these cities, and so many of them are ones we've never heard of before. Yes, we recognize the names of cities like Zarahemla and Moroni and Moroniha. But what about cities like Mokum, or Gadiandai, or Gadiomna, or Gimgimno? Never heard of these cities before. We'll never hear of them again. But God knows them. He knows the identity of every victim because he'd been calling those names through their entire lives to come unto him and repent. This is a great and terrible day for him as well, after all. We'll see that most clearly in chapter 10. And the second part of that, related to the first, he distinguishes between them as far as their guilt is concerned. It's not just that God notices when a sparrow falls. He knows which sparrow that was. He that can number the hairs on our head can distinguish between this person's sin and someone else's iniquity. Again, this isn't just blanket wickedness and blanket condemnation. I know each city that's been destroyed, and I can compare them in terms of what brought on their destruction. In verse 9, for example, he talks about the great city Jacobugath, named after the wicked King Jacob we just met a few chapters before. 
And that one was caused to be burned with fire because their sins and wickedness were above all the wickedness of the whole earth. He lists secret murders and combinations. They tried to destroy the peace of my people and the government of the land. We seem to instinctively feel that God knows all the righteous. Well, he knows all the wicked too. He'd been calling to them for a long, long time. Now, once you get past those first 12 verses, we shift to the final 10, where the Lord moves from problem to solution. He says in verse 13, O all ye that are spared, because ye were more righteous than they. Now, notice he doesn't just say, because you were righteous. He simply says, because you were more righteous. Righteousness is relative here. They basically admitted that at the end of chapter 8, when they say, if only we had repented, we were righteous enough to avoid our own destruction, but not righteous enough to spare those all around us. And so for these simply more righteous, what's the first thing the Lord says to them in 13? Will ye not now return unto me and repent of your sins and be converted, that I may heal you? Growing up reading the Book of Mormon, I always pictured those assembled in Bountiful in 3511, ready to accept Christ when he returned, as being the best of the best. Sinless saints that were just there to rejoice in Jesus. But these verses suggest that they had a lot of repenting to do themselves. It's the first thing he invites them to do. You're survivors. You're still here, which means you still have time to repent. I am prolonging your days to borrow from Alma. Use it well. In verse 14, Verily I say unto you, If ye will come unto me, this is these beautiful invitations that run throughout the rest of this chapter, ye shall have eternal life. Now that death has pressed itself so closely upon you, eternal life sounds better and better, doesn't it? Then come. Behold, mine arm of mercy is extended towards you. And whosoever will come, him will I receive, and blessed are those who come unto me. Four times in two verses. Return unto me. Come unto me. Come. Come unto me. And then he introduces himself. What would keep us from coming unto him? Not knowing who he really is and what he's really like. So he tells them. Verse 15, Behold, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If we think back to Abinadi's words about Jesus Christ having both a father side and a son side, a father side that was propelling him through Gethsemane and a son side that was making him willing to do so because he knows our needs, to our weakness he's no stranger. The mortal side of Jesus, the human side that came from Mary, I love that at the beginning where he says, I am Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I get it. I know your weakness because I took upon myself flesh, just like yours. You can come. I understand you. I know where you're coming from. Next phrase, I created the heavens and the earth and all things that in them are. I get it. I know the ideal. I created the heavens, but I know the real. I created the earth. I know what you're up against. I created all things that in them are. I know how hard it is to navigate this mortal minefield. Do you understand why my arm of mercy is extended? Just come. I was with the Father from the beginning. He gets it too. This was all part of the plan. 
not just creation, but fall and atonement, which I just worked out in your behalf. I was with the Father. When he asked, whom shall I send? He was asking for someone who could help us navigate all of this. That's me. I am in the Father, the Father in me. I'm here under the ultimate authority. I'm not trying to let you off the hook and hope that God doesn't find out about it. I'm with him. He's with me. And I'm still offering you the opportunity to repent, to come home to me and to him. In me hath the Father glorified his name. What I just did, my atoning act, is what glorifies the Father. It's what allows him to be who he knows himself to be, whom we know him to be. A Father who perfectly balances justice and mercy because he embodies both. Two phrases that come from two different statements from Joseph Smith. I love them. He says, on the one hand, that God looks upon all of creation with paternal regard. And the other, that he has made ample provision for all of his children to come home. When Jesus says that in him, that through his atonement, the Father's name is glorified, it's as if Jesus is allowing God to finally prove who he really is. A loving Father with paternal regard who makes ample provision for his children. Verse 16, I came unto my own, and my own received me not. I understand opposition and rejection and loss. I've been through it all. The scriptures concerning my coming are fulfilled. Again, time vindicating the prophet, the Lord vindicating his servants. This has all been written about and prophesied of. Your sin didn't catch me off guard. And the consequences of your sins shouldn't have caught you off guard. But you still have the opportunity to repent and return unto me. Verse 17, as many as have received me, there are those who have followed this path in the past, to them have I given to become the sons of God. And the offer is still extended. Even so will I to as many as shall believe on my name. For behold, by me redemption cometh. In me is the law of Moses fulfilled. The law that you and your ancestors have been living for centuries was a signpost. And I'm the destination. It was a schoolmaster to bring you unto Christ. Well, now I am here. In verse 18, he claims the same name titles that he'll repeat in chapter 11 that we started with. I am the light and the life of the world to replace the three days of death and darkness that you've experienced. I am Alpha and Omega. We're used to those letters, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. He would have used for them whatever the first and last letter of the Nephite alphabet would have been, whatever reformed Egyptian they were speaking. Whatever he said, that's the beginning and the end. And he's both. I am the author of new beginnings and happy endings. I'm the beginning of a better day, of light and life. I'm the end of darkness and death. I'm start to finish the author and finisher of your faith. I'm here for the duration. My words encompass the entire alphabet because I am the word of God. So read words like mercy and forgiveness and love. They're engraven upon the palms of my hands. They're written in my eyes. So 
Look at me. Behold, I am Jesus Christ. Return unto me. Repent of your sins. My arms of mercy are extended to you. Come home. With these moving words of introduction and invitation, hopefully they're now ready for an explanation of what is newly expected of them. He just said that the law of Moses is fulfilled. Well, what am I asking of you now? If offering animal sacrifice was part of repentance previously, well, all of that sacrifice was meant to point to the great and last sacrifice, infinite and eternal, which he just performed. But there is still something I want you to offer. It's the offering that all of those earlier tokens were pointing to. Verse 19, Ye shall offer up unto me no more the shedding of blood. I've done enough of that myself. Yea, your sacrifices and your burnt offerings shall be done away, for I will accept none of your sacrifices and your burnt offerings. Here's what I'm asking for instead. Ye shall offer for a sacrifice unto me a broken heart, and a contrite spirit. If you can do that, if you can come unto me with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, that's the offering you can bring to the altar. Him will I baptize with fire and with the Holy Ghost, even as the Lamanites, because of their faith in me at the time of their conversion, were baptized with fire and with the Holy Ghost, and then this interesting insight, and they knew it not. You might not even recognize what I am working within you. Sometimes spiritual growth, like physical growth, is only recognizable from an outsider that hasn't seen you for a while. You're living the experience. You don't see that growth all the time. But as our hearts become broken, and perhaps that's part of what's taking place with all of the breaking of the earth that's taking place all around them. As your spirits become contrite, as life brings you to your knees and you willingly bend them, you will find yourself changing. Believe it or not, recognize it or not. That's what animal sacrifice was always meant to point toward and what the kind of sacrifice that I'm asking for will point you to. 21 and 22, he then ends this chapter. Behold, I have come unto the world to bring redemption unto the world, to save the world from sin. It's the second half of chapter 9 that is his emphasis. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For the Son came not into the world to condemn the world. That does end up happening, sadly. People condemn themselves. That's the first 12 verses of 3 Nephi 9. But why did Jesus really come? That the world through him might be saved. That's what he's telling us in 21. And then 22. Therefore, in other words, Consequently, because the whole reason I came was to save you, therefore repent. Because whoso repenteth and cometh unto me as a little child, and we'll see that childlike expectation repeated often. Nobody offers broken hearts and contrite spirits quite like little children. Him will I receive, for of such is the kingdom of God. Behold, for such I have laid down my life and have taken it up again. That's the whole reason I did this, just did this. Therefore, repent and come unto me, ye ends of the earth, and be saved. You see how many times in this chapter he has invited us? In spite of all the darkness and death that's all around you, nothing can keep you from embracing the light and the life of the world. 
I'm here. Arms extended. Just come. Return unto me. You were with me once. Just come back. Well, in chapter 9, what did we see from this voice from heaven? We heard explanation and introduction and expectation and invitation. And he leaves them with that. As chapter 10 begins, there's silence. The voice will resume shortly, and it will be one of resignation. Basically of saying, I've given it all to you. The opportunity is still before you. So take what I just said in chapter 9 and think about this. Weigh the options. Make up your mind because the choice really is yours. I am resigned to it. I will honor your agency. We'll see that in the next few verses. But as chapter 10 begins, after all the people of the land had heard those earlier sayings and witnessed of it, after that there is silence in the land for the space of many hours. Think about it. Process it. Make up your mind. What will you do? Will you choose to come home? In verse 2, their grief, their mourning, their groaning, their cries are replaced with astonishment. It took something that surprising to pull them out of their grief. You mean this isn't the end? There's still hope and healing ahead for me? Light and life are still options for each of us? Verses 3 through 7, the voice then continues. Again, it is a voice of resignation, but behind it is still the extension of that invitation. In verse 3, the voice again comes to the people, all of them here, and it says in verse 4, O ye people of these great cities which have fallen, who are descendants of Jacob, yea, who are of the house of Israel. Interesting, he doesn't refer to them as Nephites or Lamanites. He goes back many generations to where this covenant begins. You remember one of the words that is synonymous with Israel is scattering. And they've just felt that. And what is he now inviting them to do? To come back, to return to him, to be gathered again. So to you descendants of Jacob, to all you house of scattered Israel, how oft have I gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings and have nourished you. I think this is one of the most beautiful images, beautiful metaphors for the gathering of Israel available to us. This is a hen gathering chickens. Notice it's a hen, not a rooster. So this is maternal instinct. This is mother imagery, which, by the way, Isaiah uses frequently when trying to describe Jesus. Yes, fathers are loving too, right? Paternal regard we just talked about. But there's something about the love of a mother that is incomparable. Well, maybe with one exception, the love of Christ or the love of our heavenly parents. It's a hen here, recognizing danger abroad and clucking wildly, calling to her chicks to come and find shelter under her wings. Remember what he just said one chapter ago, my arm of mercy is extended toward you. I've lifted my wings. Come and find shelter here. There are so many echoes of that imagery in the Old Testament. The psalmist repeats it frequently. Hide me under the shadow of thy wings. How excellent is thy loving kindness, O God. Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. Be merciful unto me, O God. Be merciful unto me. 
for my soul trusteth in thee. Yea, in the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be overpassed. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert, the covering that is, of thy wings. Because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. Or one of the most famous, the very last chapter in the entire Old Testament. Malachi 4. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. Son in that verse is spelled S-U-N, and yet it's capitalized. This beautiful combination. Here is the Son of God who also happens to be the light of the world, and he is rising, dispelling darkness, extending his wings so that we might come and find shelter there. Not just shelter, in fact. What's the last words of verse 4? And nourishment too. It's not just protection that he's offering. It's that nourishment, the fruit of the tree of life. He's not just trying to help us survive. He's trying to help us thrive. So let me gather you, not just to protect, but to nourish your faith. One other connection to the Old Testament that's worth noting here comes from the story of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth, as a widow, was unsheltered. There was no protective wing in Israel that she could huddle under. And yet when she comes to know Boaz, as she seeks him out on the threshing floor one night, she says to him, Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a near kinsman. There is some kind of familial connection here through her mother-in-law, Naomi. The words here are key. You are a kinsman, so take your skirt, your robe, and cover me. When you were a little kid, did you ever do that? Do you ever seek shelter in the skirts of your mom? Well, the Hebrew words here are fascinating because the Hebrew word used for kinsman is the same word that means redeemer. And the word that is used for skirt is the same word that elsewhere is translated as wing. There even seems to be a play on words in the book of Ruth because that verse about spread thy skirt because thou art a kinsman, that's in chapter 3. One chapter earlier, Boaz says to Ruth, a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel under whose wings thou art come to trust. It's almost like Ruth is taking Boaz's language and sending it right back to him. He said, you have trusted under the wing of the Redeemer. And she says, will this Redeemer, will you spread your wing? This kinsman, will you cover me in your skirt? Such beautiful symbolism here. Among this couple, they soon get married, but eventually prove to be among the ancestors of Jesus. And you see what that Jesus is offering? What his earlier ancestor had done, he is doing to others. Extending those wings, spreading those skirts. Even that earlier verse in Ruth when it talks about under whose wings thou art come to trust. Other translations of that verse say under whose wings you have come to take refuge. More than just trust, it really is this idea of shelter. It's the hen gathering her chickens under her wings, taking refuge there. That same Hebrew word, wings, skirt, it just means some kind of extremity. And it's in our extremities that we tend to find God. He is extending his extremities, his arms of mercy to invite us in. 
The woman with the issue of blood, what did she touch? The hem of his garment, the edge of his skirt. She came close enough to touch the tip of the feather, and it was enough to heal her. Or look at the Ark of the Covenant, and the lid that covered it, what was on top? Two cherubim. And these heavenly creatures with wings extended over the covenant itself. That's the only reason our covenants bring us safety. Because coming into the covenant, we have come under the wings of our mother hen. Notice how he keeps saying it. In verse 4, how oft have I gathered you? Then in verse 5, how oft would I have gathered you? And then in verse 6, how oft will I gather you? Past tense, future tense, with conditional tense in between. Do you have any idea how many times I have gathered you? How many times I've sheltered you under my protective embrace? And do you have any idea how many times I will yet do so? My mortal life has just finished, but my eternal life never will. And what did I finish? I finished my preparations unto the children of men. I will keep gathering you forever if you'll come. And again, in the middle of that, how oft would I have gathered you? That conditional tense. I was so much more willing than you ever could realize. I just wish you had come. Do you have any idea how many times I stretched forth the arms and clucked, calling to you in every imaginable way for you to come? The problem he describes in verse 5, How oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings? Yea, O ye people of the house of Israel, who have fallen. Yea, O ye people of the house of Israel, ye that dwell at Jerusalem, as ye that have fallen. So old world or new, I want all my children home. Yea, how oft would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chickens? And then these four painful words, And ye would not. You see, I would have gathered, but you would not come. This is an echo of a very recent lament from Jesus himself. Near the end of the book of Matthew, when Jesus is looking out over Jerusalem, the city that he would give his life in and for, and he weeps. He weeps because he would and they wouldn't. He weeps because he tried to gather them under his wing. He uses the same metaphor there as well. And then he says, but ye would not. So he says it in the New Testament. He says it here in the Book of Mormon. He will yet say it in the Doctrine and Covenants twice. One of those instances is fascinating. It's in chapter 43 or section 43 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And you want to talk about putting all of these things in the context of a single verse. All that we've seen in 3 Nephi 8, 9, and 10 it comes down to this passage in section 43, verse 24 and 25. So two verses. O ye nations of the earth, how often would I have gathered you together as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and then these four tragic words, but ye would not. And then he gets more specific as to how he has called. How oft have I called upon you by the mouth of my servants, the ones you cast out or stoned or slain, and by the ministering of angels, the ones sent to declare glad tidings of great joy, and by mine own voice spoken from the heavens, and by the voice of, notice the list, 
thunderings and the voice of lightnings and the voice of tempests and the voice of earthquakes and great hailstorms and the voice of famines and pestilences of every kind. Sound a little like what's happening in 358? He called by the great sound of a trump, not wanting anyone to sleep through the alarm clock. He called by the voice of judgment and by the voice of mercy all the day long because some respond better to judgment and others respond better to mercy. He will try them both and he'll do it all day long, never tiring. He'll call by the voice of glory and honor and the riches of eternal life. He'll hold out hope. He'll hold out rewards. He's just trying to get you to come. I would have saved you with an everlasting salvation. And then you can almost predict the ending. But ye would not. Can you hear the gardener lamenting in Jacob 5? What more could I have done for my vineyard? Can you hear the voice of the good shepherd devastated over the loss of even one lost sheep? Can you hear the voice of the father of the prodigal son as he's looking out the window, straining his eyes to see any evidence of a return? Robe, ring, and fatted calf at the ready. Can you hear the hen, this mother, willing to self-sacrifice, to face whatever the outward dangers might be, and to provide that barrier, promising safety within, no matter what is raging without? I was so moved by this concept during my five months of living abroad in Israel as a college student, haunted by those words, but ye would not, that Jesus uttered over a city that he loved and that I had come to love, that I tried to put my feelings for all of these verses into a poem, one that I called Echoing Jesus, But Ye Would Not. He looked upon Jerusalem, where prophets long had vigil kept, the tide of sin they'd failed to stem, so Jesus raised his voice and wept. O city of iniquity, who kills and stones her holy men, how oft would I have gathered thee as chickens by their mother hen? For when some danger prompts her cry, the cover of her wings is sought. Jerusalem, with judgment nigh, I called to you, but ye would not. The same was true of Lehi's seed, when they in sin by death were caught. His plea to change they did not heed, so came his words, but ye would not. In modern times he calls again, he beckons us to gather near. To find protection from the hen, we need but call in mighty prayer. He calls to us through men today, who long the gospel truths have taught. Yet once again we hear him say, I would have saved, but ye would not. The Lord will plead, the Lord will call. With love he'll raise a warning voice. His open arms extend to all, but we alone can make the choice. What grief we'd feel to see the face of him who the atonement wrought and hear from him to our disgrace the bitter words, but ye would not. Can you sense the love and the longing in this mother hen? Come, return, repent, come unto me so that I can heal you, so that I can protect you, so that I can nourish you. On the heels of that impassioned plea, he says in verse seven, but if not, O house of Israel, 
The places of your dwelling shall become desolate until the time of the fulfilling of the covenant to your fathers. You see, he ends this lament in the same place he began it. In verse 4, he spoke of Jacob and Israel. And in 7, he speaks of the covenant made to their fathers. A covenant of gathering. I promised them I would. I make to you the same promise. Eventually, all of the house of Israel will be gathered home. I'm ready to do it now, if you'll just come. Instead, if you don't, then it will still be desolate until the time finally arrives for the covenant to be fulfilled. But we don't have to wait that long. Gather early. Come unto me. In verse 8, the people's response is an interesting one. You remember they had been weeping and crying and moaning and groaning, and then it stopped out of astonishment. They then hear the Lord's lament, and in verse 8, they join him. They began to weep and howl again because of the loss of their kindred and friends. It didn't have to be this way. He would have gathered us, but we would not. In verse 9, then, the three days pass away. The darkness disperses off the face of the land. The earth ceases to tremble. There must have been aftershocks for days after the three hours of intense destruction. The rocks did cease to rend. The dreadful groanings did cease. All the tumultuous noises did pass away. We talked about that earlier, just the intensity of the sound that is reaching their ears, even if no light can reach the eye. Well, now all is still. Verse 10, the earth did cleave together again, that it stood. The rock of heaven has just spoken. The rock of the Redeemer is standing firm, waiting for them to choose to found themselves upon it. The mourning and the weeping and the wailing of the people who were spared alive did cease. And their mourning was turned into joy, their lamentation into the praise and thanksgiving unto the Lord Jesus Christ, their Redeemer. Sounds a little like the psalmist who wrote, For his anger endureth but a moment, in his favor is life, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy cometh in the morning. He could have ended there. Instead, Mormon continues and narrates us through some insight that he wants to make sure we don't miss. Verse 11, thus far were the scriptures fulfilled which had been spoken by the prophets. I don't see this as an I told you so, but I do see this as an I told you. All of this has been prophesied before. I think this is yet one more declaration that time does vindicate the prophet. But I think this is also a prophet historian, Mormon, from his vantage point of time saying, it's all been fulfilled just like I've read about. I read the prophecy and now I've read the fulfillment. So he now summarizes, verse 12, it was the more righteous part of the people who were saved. It was they who received the prophets and stoned them not. Again, a nod to the importance of accepting God's servants. It was they who would not shed the blood of the saints who were spared. In verse 13, he gets painfully specific in reviewing all the fates of those who couldn't sing, We thank thee, O God, for the prophet. He talks of those that were sunk and buried up in the earth or drowned in the depths of the sea or burned by fire or fallen upon and crushed to death or carried away in the whirlwind. Or, this one was interesting at the end, overpowered by the vapor of smoke and of darkness, to be overpowered by it. 
to loosen our grip on the iron rod, to lose sight of the tree of life, to wander out towards the great and spacious building, to be drowned in the depths of that river of filthy water. And then Mormon says in 14, Now whoso readeth, he's speaking to his readers now directly, let him understand. He that hath the scriptures, let him search them and see and behold if all these deaths and destructions by fire and smoke and tempests and whirlwinds and the opening of the earth to receive them, all these things, see if they're not unto the fulfilling of the prophecies of many of the holy prophets. Again, not an I told you so, but I did tell you, I warned you. The hen has been clucking for centuries. You could have seen all of this coming your way. Well, we better follow Mormon's advice, right? If we have the scriptures before us, and we do, we're supposed to search them and see if this isn't exactly what the Lord said through his servants previously. So let's do it on at least two occasions. First Nephi chapter 12, during Nephi's visions that explain his father's dream, he says this, It came to pass that I saw a mist of darkness on the face of the land of promise. So the element in his father's dream is now becoming an event in future history. I saw lightnings, I heard thunderings and earthquakes and all manner of tumultuous noises. I saw the earth and the rocks that they rent and I saw mountains tumbling into pieces. I saw the plains of the earth and they were broken up and I saw many cities that they were sunk and I saw many that they were burned with fire and I saw many that did tumble to the earth because of the quaking thereof. And it came to pass that I saw these things, and I saw the vapor of darkness that it passed from off the face of the earth, and behold, I saw multitudes who had not fallen because of the great and terrible judgments of the Lord. And I saw the heavens open, and the Lamb of God descending out of heaven, and he came down and showed himself unto them. Our very first Nephi saw third Nephi 8, 9, 10, and 11 preview of coming destructions and coming condescensions. He repeats the prophecy near the end of 2 Nephi. He gives Mormon a chance to tell us to keep going and searching for yet more scripture. 2 Nephi 26, the beginning of it, is as close a parallel to what we see in 3 Nephi 8 through 10 as you'll get. Nephi says, After the Messiah shall come, there shall be signs given unto my people of his birth, and also of his death and resurrection. And great and terrible shall that day be unto the wicked, for they shall perish. And they perish because they cast out the prophets and the saints, and stone them and slay them. Wherefore the cry of the blood of the saints shall ascend up to God from the ground against them. Is this all sounding familiar? Wherefore all those who are proud and that do wickedly, the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, for they shall be as stubble. And they that kill the prophets and the saints, the depths of the earth shall swallow them up, saith the Lord of hosts. The mountains shall cover them, whirlwinds shall carry them away, buildings shall fall upon them and crush them to pieces and grind them to powder. They shall be visited with thunderings and lightnings and earthquakes and all manner of destructions, for the fire of the anger of the Lord shall be kindled against them. And they shall be as stubble, and the day that cometh shall consume them, saith the Lord of hosts. Now Nephi is neither gloating nor threatening here. Verse 7, he's mourning. Oh, the pain and the anguish of my soul for the loss of the slain of my people. For I, Nephi, have seen it, and it well nigh consumeth me before the presence of the Lord. But I must cry unto my God, thy ways are just. 
But behold, the righteous that hearken unto the words of the prophets, and destroy them not, but look forward unto Christ with steadfastness. For the signs which are given, notwithstanding all persecution, describes the beginning of 3 Nephi to a T. Behold, they are they which shall not perish, but the Son of Righteousness shall appear unto them. He will arise with healing in his wings. He shall heal them. They shall have peace with him. All of this was known and prophesied and written before. And it's Mormon with a 2020 hindsight of a historian that sees that God laid it all out in advance. How oft would I have gathered you? I wanted you to see this all coming because I wanted you to be here for my coming. I did my best to prepare you. Back in 3 Nephi 10 and verse 15, Mormon continues, Yea, many have testified of these things at the coming of Christ, and they were slain because they testified of these things. Satan always attacking the messenger because he cannot stand the message. Verse 16, Zenos was one of them. Zenic was another. 17, Jacob, that is Israel, also testified concerning these things. They were his posterity after all. He spoke of a remnant of the seed of Joseph. And isn't that us? Aren't we a remnant of the seed of Joseph? These things which testify of us, are they not written upon the plates of brass that Lehi brought from Jerusalem? You see how steeped in Scripture Mormon was? Brass plates all across the gold plates, putting this all together. We should have seen this coming. And then this crescendo reaches its climax. In verse 18, it came to pass that in the ending of the thirty and fourth year, so some time has passed, we started today at the beginning of the thirty and fourth year, first month, we're now near the end of it. And I will show unto you that the people of Nephi who were spared, and also those who had been called Lamanites who had been spared, they did have great favors shown unto them, great blessings poured out upon their heads, insomuch that soon after the ascension of Christ into heaven from the old world, he did truly manifest himself unto them here in the new, showing his body unto them and ministering unto them, and an account of his ministry shall be given hereafter. Therefore, for this time, I make an end of my sayings. I don't know how long Mormon waited before he then continued the abridgment and gave us 3 Nephi 11. I'm glad we don't have to wait at all. Just keep reading. Jesus has come.